are the confessions of American Christians recovering from American Christianity. This is the world we made. This is Nathan Alverson, your humble and obedient host. I'm joined by our good friend, Pastor Jacob Menzel. And this is the world we made too, fatherhood. That's right, Jake. Once again, we spent our time interviewing Pastor Tim Bailey, this time on the subject of fatherhood. That's a subject he should know something about since he has, what, five children and 20-something grandchildren? Plus, he literally wrote the book on the subject, a book called Daddy Tried Overcoming the Failures of Fatherhood, a book that no less than John Frame said was the best book on fathering currently in print, and that's a direct quote. Available now wherever fine books are sold. Now, fatherhood, obviously a huge issue in our culture today. Nope. No, not no. an issue okay. at all. Why yeah. are we even doing this? I don't see why there'd be any troubles. <laughs> I apologize. Fatherhood. fatherhood, a complete non-issue in society. <laughs> That's today. right. Yeah. Everybody loves their dad. It's a trope that father knows best. Is some is everyone's well, the reason favorite the show. Simpsons is funny is because there are no dads like Homer right. Simpson. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Comedy should always be as unrelatable as possible. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 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 okay. Fatherhood may be a big deal. Look, we're not going to bore you with a bunch of statistics about divorce or anything like that, or or about. Although broken, we could for days. Or, yeah, I'm, yeah, we all know fatherhood's a huge issue. Many of us come from broken homes. Many of us had touchy relationships with our fathers, to say the best. Yeah, many of us had bad, abusive, absent, negligent fathers, and many of us are fathers now that have kids of their own and are just trying to figure things out. Yeah, and so that's what this season's going to be all about. Now, if you listened to last season of World We Made, you'll remember that we spent a lot of the season just trying to find our bearings in the difficult subject of homosexuality. Yeah, when the Obergefell case hit, a lot of Christians felt that the world had been turned upside down. It took a lot of people by surprise. How did we get from, in less than a lifetime, sodomy being illegal in all 50 states to a place where gay marriage is now the law of the land? And so we spent a lot of time just talking about how we got to where we are. Yeah, now this season is going to be a little bit different, maybe somewhat more straightforward in that we're still going to do the work of talking about how we got to where we are today. Absolutely, but there's also a lot of just basic meat and potatoes, how do you raise your kids kind of stuff that maybe a couple generations ago would have just been obvious. Like maybe this podcast is boring 50 years ago. Yeah, uh, another way to think about it is that season one was how we got here. This season we're trying to do a little bit more how we got here and also what to do now. So we're going going to spend a lot of time on discipline, on raising teenagers, on protecting children from sexual abuse. We're just going to talk about a lot of the things that you as parents, that you as a father in particular, are facing. However, the first few episodes, and this one in particular, are going to be a more big picture. We're going to start by looking at how fatherhood and the nature of male authority in general declined in our society. Yeah, and then we're going to move into correcting our twisted understanding of fatherhood by looking at the character of God the Father Almighty. And then we're going to transition from that into being a father in our society. And then we're going to transition into seeing fatherhood everywhere in the world around us. And then the whole rest of the season is going to be focused on being a good father, specifically in the home. 
So this episode in particular, we're going to focus on what went wrong. How did fatherhood writ large, male authority, husband authority, the, the authority of house fathers, why did it go away? Why is it so in such broken shape? So that's what this episode is about. But as usual, Tim's starting point was a little unexpected. Well, I just got done. I was late coming in here because I was explaining to a young teenage girl that she needed to give her father smiles. And I think it's a foreign concept to any teenager today, any person in high school or junior high, that they should live to give pleasure to their father and their mother. And why do they not know that? Well, because nobody teaches them, least of all their dad. And the fact is, you know, when I get home from work, I want my children to make me happy to be alive. And I want my wife, you know, my, my, my wife, Mary Lee, tells about her mother, who we just buried last week, and she's just a paragon of godly womanhood to me. Such a precious gift that I had the mother and the mother-in-law I had. And her mother, every single day during the week, spiffed herself up, made her hair nice, washed up, straightened up her clothing, straightened up the house, and had dinner ready when dad got home. And it wasn't because dad ever told her to do that. It was because that was the gift that wives knew would give strength to their husbands for, 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 for the end of a long day. You know, dad had to take the train in from Wheaton to, uh, to Chicago, then go over to Moody, then walk back to Moody, then get in the train, then come back. So you think of all that traveling, how early he got up. And at the end of the day, that man had worked hard. You know, women will complain, well, you don't know what it's like to take care of little children. Well, yeah, that's true. But I think it's a, it's a fool's errand to argue which is the more thankless task, the cobbler that sits in the shoe shop and hammers the same nails into the sole of the shoe and listens to the customers and never gets to alter his job day in, day out, his entire life, or the mother, as Chesterton says, that gets to introduce her family to the world, to the universe. You know, if we start arguing who has the nastier job, I think a good case can be made that... Uh, Despite the difficulties of motherhood, despite the dirty diapers, despite the crying, that all things being equal, generally women would much prefer to be a mother in a home than to be some supernumerary, you know, some, some wage slave at some important business, which was going to go bankrupt in two years anyhow. So I don't know. I don't know. It seems to me that we have lost a sense of the order of the home. And now we try to make an order. You know, there's no such thing as an orderless home. Every home has its order. But now we try to figure it out without reference to sexuality. And in my experience, most of the time, what that means is whoever has the dominant personality controls everything in the home. And that's just nasty. You know, there's nothing good about that. It's never good for a woman to lead a home that has a man in it. Never. It, it is embarrassing to the children. I don't care how much that woman and her husband and her children deny what I just said. I counsel these families and have for decades. And it is embarrassing to the children. It's humiliating to the children for their father not to have the leadership of the home and the respect of his wife. Now, I'm not making any judgments about what causes that. It may be it's caused because he's molested children. It may be it's caused because he refuses to work. 
It may be its cause because that woman is a shrew. And there's an awful lot of that in the church. You know, it's gilded with, you know, spiritual speak and, you know, all these lies. But there are a lot of homes in the church that are just simply led by the woman because she's a shrew. She, she refuses to honor her husband and to live contentedly. Wait a second, Jake, is, is Tim saying this because he's from the time of, well, this Folgers ad? Your coffee, sir. Thanks, beautiful. You're welcome. How can such a pretty wife make such bad coffee? I heard that. Judy, what brings you over? Oh, Mrs. Olson, Frank crabbed about my coffee again. I can't make good coffee. Good coffee, no problem. If you use the coffee with better flavor. Folgers. Folgers coffee? Your coffee, sir. Oh, thanks, honey. You're welcome. It's great, honey. How can such a pretty wife make such great coffee? I heard that. Okay, so that Folgers ad's not, like, actually representative of life in the 1950s. I mean, what ads really are. But it was definitely appealing to a father-knows-best-and-a-wife-should-want-to-please-her-husband ideal that advertisers could actually count on people accepting. Yeah, advertisers are masters at appealing to felt desires and needs, and Folgers Coffee is still around today because back in the day they knew they could sell coffee by appealing to a woman's desire to please her husband. You can find thousands of ads like that for all kinds of products. Just go to YouTube and look up sexist ads. Okay, so what happened? I mean, the podcast is called The World We Made. And if you want to talk about how we got here, the brokenness of fatherhood that is on just a massive scale today, I guess we could go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? Yeah, and and maybe we should start there. That is where Eve subverted Adam. It's where Adam failed to protect and discipline Eve. It's where they both sinned and cast off the fatherhood of God. And ultimately, all rebellion against fatherhood does begin there with rebellion against God the Father Almighty. And all abdication of the responsibility of fatherhood begins there too when Adam blames Eve for the fall instead of taking responsibility for it himself. But there is something, what, unique about the brokenness of modern day fatherhood. We, we ain't the first generation to cast off fatherhood, but it's different today, different in a bad way. So, so how did we get to like today, to here and now in the 21st century? Well, the answer is, as always, the church. There's a little book called The Feminization of American Culture by Ann Douglas. She's an award-winning historian. She's taught at Harvard, Princeton, Columbia, and we'll link to that in the show notes. Yeah, it's as good a place as any to begin thinking about this stuff. In her book, Douglas traces the feminization of American culture. She begins with the hard Calvinistic preaching of the Puritans at the First Great Awakening. In the First Great Awakening, we had theologians and preachers like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, and they were calling for men to be born again, to be changed and transformed. But guys like Edwards, while they demanded a change of heart, their doctrine and their preaching was focused relentlessly on truth. Who God is, what you must do. Now, they appealed to the affections, the emotions, but ultimately everything was up to God working in the hearts of the hearers to make them respond to the truth. Right, but here's the thing. God, of course, did work in people's hearts very famously during the First Great Awakening. When Jonathan Edwards preached sinners in the hands of an angry God, people supposedly dug their hands into the pews, tore up wood, they were crying out. And all the while, Edwards was calmly, and and there's some argument about this, but perhaps even boringly was burying his head in his manuscript and reading it. So the Second Great Awakening comes around, and men like Charles Finney are trying to achieve the same effects that were recorded in the First Great Awakening, but without the hard truth and reasoning behind it. The emphasis became about 
not declaring truth, but on producing results and experiences. As Douglas puts it, quote, there was a preoccupation with numbers and an obsession with popularity. Right, so it's, it's a little bit like how a Hallmark movie or, or like a Coca-Cola advertisement, it'll try to make you feel the emotion of, say, returning home for the holidays, for example. But they won't actually do the work of creating a credible story about a family and a person returning home to them. They won't do the work of actually creating truth. They just try to pander to a quick, cheap, easy emotional response. Right. It's all pathos. It's all sentiment. It's not anchored to anything that's hard or real. It's just going for an emotional effect. And so presto, you get to that point, and basically the church becomes by and for women. Piety becomes a feminine thing. Because if the church is just a bunch of feelings about Jesus and whatever, eh, what dude cares about that? So then cut to the 1950s, maybe 100 years later. Industrialization, war, suffrage movements, temperance movements, they've all changed the face of the American home. And now there's still some remnant of the old ways, a wife in a Folgers ad still supposed to honor and please her husband. Right, but, but the hard truths about God and his character, even about the characteristics of men and women, they've been replaced by these kinds of cheap sentiments in the church and culture at large. So the wife, for example, watching that advertisement, she knows she's supposed to serve her husband some delicious Folgers. But she doesn't really know why. Right. There's something empty about it now. It's more of a longing, an ideal, a a nostalgia than it is a reality. And so by the 1960s, kids are ready to cast the whole thing off as the hypocritical sham that it was. Right. And I mean, I don't know. Who can really blame them? And, And from there, it's just a hop, a skip, and a jump to the fatherlessness we see around us today. But here we are. The ideal has been lost. And given that, what does a man like Tim really expect us to do You know, when you take into account the global galactic failure of fathers everywhere, that was some of the thinking behind my next question. Let me just ask the obvious sort of devil's advocacy question that a lot of people may be thinking. It's easy to talk in these generalities about what it should be like, but given the fact that fathers have largely abdicated, that a lot of us grew up with Homer Simpson for our dad, Uh Uh why should we give ourselves to fatherhood? In other words... It's, it's great to say, oh, it should be like that, but a lot of us have just had to survive. Uh-huh. You want to punish us for just surviving and getting on with our lives in the absence of fatherhood? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, okay. All right. So what word did you just use that set me completely on edge? I don't know. Survive? No. Do you know what the word was? Punish? Yes. But why did you use the word? <laughs> I think it was because you were playing devil's advocate. Yeah, I'm trying to get in yeah. the head of but, but, a rebellious but, person. But, okay, but but hold on a second. Punish is not a word that would be used by a rebel. Punish is a word that would be used by a victim. Punish is not a strong, it's a weak word. Why do you want to punish me? Right. It's a man who thinks that it's about him and that I'm trying to minimize him by talking about fatherhood. And he knows he's not a father. And why would, why do I want to make more obvious things that he wears every day, every moment of every day, feeling shame over. Well, you just want to punish me about that? And it's like, I don't want to punish you. I just want to point out to you that God made you a man and that this is not something you take on or off. This is something that is the, your essence. There's never been a moment of your existence that you haven't been a man. Never. Not in the womb, not out of the womb. Okay, In heaven, you'll be a man. This is who you are. This is not an identity. This is who you are. And so why wouldn't you be filled with joy to have a man look at you and say, do you know, 
actually, you're a man. You're not a person. And that means you're a father, you're not a mother. And you're certainly not a parent. I think that men today have to readjust their approach to life and have to realize that all of us are tempted to cop a posture as victims. And that when somebody teaches us truth, actually, despite how we feel, they're not being hostile or aggressive. They're trying to help us. And you know how often the Apostle Paul in his letters says, I don't want you to be ignorant. And so shouldn't somebody that doesn't want people to be ignorant be loved and welcomed? Can't, do we really have such insecurity that we have to look at everything as being punishment or mean or hostile or, or egotistical or arrogant or come on, for heaven's sakes, can't we just talk? And so that's my response. My response is, if a man has no desire to be who he is, then don't talk to me. But if you think maybe you aren't who God made you to be, then talk to me. And the first thing I'll say to you is let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. You are a man. You can't separate any aspect of doctrine, of theology, of sanctification, of psychology, of mysticism, of spirituality. Nothing can be separated from the fact that you're a man. Because there is no category of your life where you're not a man. I know that it seems as if we can live our life in a place that's neither man nor woman. I know we think that we can live in a place that's man in bed and who we marry, but sort of androgynous in the movies we consume, the music we listen to. I know a lot of us hold very tightly our taste in clothing or music or various uh, forms of consumption of culture where we know that we're more masculine in this and more feminine in this and we like to look at ourselves as being sort of progressive in the feminine aspects of our tastes and our style. But the fact is, never in history has that ever been a good thing, including in the ancient world where you had such a preponderance of homosexual, uh, I don't want to call it intimacy, but I suppose I have to, on the part of the men. Even then, it was absolutely verboten for a man to engage in homosexuality without being manly in how he engaged in homosexuality. And the only people who didn't do that were slaves, prostitutes, and boys, like with the Spartans, who in a few years would become the manly man and would have a boy. And it, it was sort of the way that he was made into a man was to play woman with a man, an older man, for a couple of years. And then when he grew hair, body hair, he was then transferred and immediately took a wife, had children, and became a man to another little boy. There's never been a time when men haven't loved and women haven't loved being men and women. It's just, it's such a monstrous crime against all of creation and the God who made this world that we don't have any ability of seeing it. And I know it sounds like I'm trying to punish people, but I'm not. Well, there's just going to be a lot of people that listen to this and think, but I don't love it. Why don't I love it? Well, oh, oh, you want come me to on, make myself on. love okay, it? Okay, that's a good question. So here's my response to that. There are just tons of things about your life that you actually don't like the dispensations God gave to you. Do you want to be alive in 2018? Is there another period of, of history that you would prefer to be alive in? Do you like living in Bloomington? Is there another place that you wish you lived? You don't tell me that in everything that God has given to you, you're content. I'm not going to, but I could bring up some things that I know you're not content with. Mm -hmm. Now, and they're not sins, by the way. <laughs> no, I know that you could. Yeah. But so here's my question. 
Do we feel in other areas the same freedom we feel in the area of our sexuality to tell God, I'm not happy with it and I'm going to do something different? God has given us, has assigned us stations. And sexuality is not, it's not an elective, it's a requirement. It's not something that we can take off, we can't. We can do everything we want to to try to eviscerate it of any meaning or function in our lives. And every single step we take in that direction is self-destructive. And so what I always think about, and I thought about this Monday when I got up and was in the shower, and I was trying to think of how to explain to people that when it comes to sexuality, there is no such thing as discipleship which doesn't teach you to be a man or a woman. That the instant somebody becomes a Christian, the first thing we should do, because Jesus says, teaching them to obey everything I commanded, the first thing we should do is say to them now, this generally didn't have to be said before, but it does have to be said now, you're actually a man. And so absolutely everything about your life will be pollinated by your manhood. And that's good. And so, you know, you say, well, you know, a lot of people don't like their manhood. And I say, yeah, I know that. And that's rebellion against God. I can't go around saying to God that I wish he'd given me a different wife. I wish he'd given me a different place to live, a different church to serve, a different father, a different mother. Why would I say that? He's given me who he intended to give me. Now, I can mourn certain aspects of myself and others, but why would you mourn being made a man? The only reason is because you live today when people think that their sexuality is not the essence of who they are. I'm the sort of person who has seen a lot of the corruption of fatherhood, who's felt the pain of that. And I can't bring myself to say, dear father, when I pray, or to say, Abba, father. How do I begin to become a father or embrace fatherhood if I'm just not feeling it? Well, I don't want to say what I'm going to say because I know people will be very angry at me. If you will not address God as Father, you are not a Christian. That's it. So if you're so precious with your own suffering and victimhood or your own rebellion that you repudiate the fact that Scripture defines a Christian as one whose heart is owned by the Holy Spirit in such a way that the Holy Spirit cries out from our lips, Abba, Father, then you're not a believer. There is no Christianity that's separate from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, pray like this, our Father. I preach to people who say, I don't feel any warmth, and I'd prefer not to because I didn't like my father. And I'm like, okay, so like the woman who's been abused by, you know, her uncle growing up, the man who was molested by his choir director, what are we going to do? We're going to say that we hate choir directors and uncles? We're going to spend our life living in the prison of our bitterness against the way we were molested and harmed when we were children? And that's what it is to not pray to God as Father. We're choosing to live as a victim in bitterness and resentment, and therefore to not give God the honor that he's due. And to me, that is the essence of unbelief and of repudiation of the Christian faith. So I don't know, I hate to say that, but I think scripture's absolutely clear. If you will not pray to God as Father, you are not a Christian. I would never accept, if I was in the interview, and I, I'm usually not in this church, it's the elders who do it. If I was in an interview as an elder and someone said, I won't pray to God as Father, I'd say, well, you may not join this church and you may not come to the table and you may not be baptized. Because if I baptize you, I'm going to do as Jesus said, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I know it sounds like I'm trying to punish us, but I think I've made it very clear in the previous season. I understand this because I am he. 
I am the enemy. I created this world and I now anathematize it. And I'm teaching this stuff so that all the sins of my youth can somehow be atoned for. Now, you know, I know I can't atone for my sins, right? But you get what I'm saying. <laughs> uh-huh. <Yeah. laughs> World We Made was produced and executive produced by Nathan Alberson and Jacob Benzel. You can find more great content at warhornmedia.com or find us on social media under at warhornmedia. Next week, the fatherhood of God. Thank you.